Hey everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Welcome back to my corner. <laughs> this is the Everything That You Need to Know series of different primers where I break down everything that you need to know about the stock market, the economy, and the crypto market. Today we're going to be talking about different economic theories. I think this is going to be important because oftentimes we get really lost in the present day news and what's going on and often it, you just kind of forget. I just wanted to have a little bit of fun today and look back into the past and what people used to think about the economy and how wrong they were and how wrong we will likely be one day. First though, I do want to dive into some news just because of course I do. What, what's been happening this week? So the market it's been going down. It's a little bit up today. Who knows where it'll be once this actually gets published. Jerome Powell, who's the chair of the Federal Reserve, testified in front of the Senate the other day. He came out as much more hawkish. He was like, yes, we're going to speed up tapering. Yes, we see the elevated inflation pressures and we're going to stop calling it transitory, not because it's not transitory, just because everybody keeps on misinterpreting that word. Transitory was transitory, but now inflation is not transitory anymore. They do recognize that higher inflation is here. Because of that, we are going to see interest rate hikes probably into 2022 and mid 2022 is when they're expected to be. Powell was also like, we did not expect these supply chain pressures, all this stuff. And it's going to be really interesting when we talk about the economic theory, because we're going to be like, oh, okay, nobody actually expected anything to happen ever. Yet this is how it is. And it's important to know, important to understand. Just as a reminder, nobody actually really knows what's going on, <laughs> which I mean, maybe like stop watching this video now, <laughs> but that's kind of a big summary. It's like nobody knows what's going on. Getting into more news items, the bond market is going absolutely wild. The two-year, 10-year spread is very flat. The market is pricing in hikes, so rate hikes over the next few months. The two-year is pricing in more tapering expectations. And what that means, the two-year rising, right? So expectations of sooner than expected rate increases have pushed these short-term yields higher. The 10-year has flattened because of hawkish policy and slower economic growth. Typically, the yield curve is going to slope upward. I'm going to talk about this more tomorrow, but typically the yield curve is going to slope upward. So the 10-year is going to be higher than the two-year because of expectations of higher inflation, economic growth. You expect the economy to grow over a long a long run and the yields are going to reflect that right but when this curve flattens that means that economic outlook has gotten worse when this yield curve inverts that means that people are like way bearish on the future people are getting pretty spooked out by the market right now there's huge inflows into blackrock's treasury etf we're just seeing a lot of worry and another interesting thing that has happened is opec surprisingly is going to hike production and that will ease pressure on oil prices they're going to have a four hundred thousand dollar barrel day production hike for january i don't know how they're gonna do it <laughs> They have literally not a lot of spare capacity, especially in Russia. I'm going to talk about all that more tomorrow, but it, it, I was like very surprised. I thought they would totally use the virus as a way to be like, oh no, no oil from us. Haha, <laughs> prices are going to remain. I don't know what's going on. Japan has also came out and they were like, we're, we have to do oil and gas investment. We have to invest in this stuff. And that's something that I've said on the channel for a while is you can't have green energy policy without green energy investment. So let's talk about history because you can't understand the present without understanding the past. We're going to talk about economic theory and it's going to be great. So mercantilism. Everyone else get out, but we're going to sell to you. So this is, it was the 16th to the 18th century underlying theory is that the government is going to have to intervene for people to prosper. They had subsidies, so those are going to support producers by payment in certain industries. So essentially, the government is going to grease the wheels in order for things to get done. We're going to make your production a little bit easier with this money. There's tariffs. Those are going to be taxes imposed on goods being transported from one country to another. And so essentially, if you're importing something, the government is going to be like, oh, okay, taxes. They're going to tax the heck out of it 
and that is going to encourage people to buy and produce locally. And the whole goal was to limit the importation of goods because essentially that was like, whoa, we don't want to contribute to other economies, only our economy. Only our economy should benefit from anything ever. That seems like a good plan, right? <laughs> uh, it, and it led to a lot of battles because essentially everyone was like mad at each other all the time because they were trying to have their economy be the best. Not everybody can be the best in these individual silos. Everyone was like, no, 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 I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. Free trade is simply better. So if we have to zoom out and like reflect on mercantilism, the idea is that free trade is simply better. You're not battling other countries. You're not trying to be the best within this individual silo. This leads to the idea of comparative advantage and choice of goods. People are going to do a better job when they're able to choose from a lot of different goods. And then comparative advantage, some countries are simply better at producing things than other countries. A corn farmer, they're a lot better at producing corn than a wheat farmer. And if the corn farmer was trying to make both corn and wheat, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes a whole lot more sense to have comparative advantage where the corn farmer buys wheat from the wheat farmer, the wheat farmer buys corn from the corn farmer, and that way they can both benefit from this ecosystem. This idea of comparative advantage requires the corn and wheat farmer to get along, which wasn't really happening in the 16th to 18th centuries. And so that was sort of the big thing is like everybody was just like, we're, re we're ready to rumble. And that that's hard. So then came Adam Smith and classical economics. And this is essentially the market can figure it out by itself. It doesn't need anybody. It doesn't want anybody. Adam Smith, he wrote Wealth of Nations. He was essentially like mercantilism sucks and free trade enables countries to specialize in producing things that they're better at producing and we should encourage this. Leave markets to their own devices. Stop intervening. Let them figure it out. They can figure it out. This was getting away from really the monarch style that existed during that time period. They were like, leave people alone and prosperity will come. It was very laissez-faire. Let it be. Don't intervene. Get out of here. Government. Go away. Government makes a lot more stuff unstable. They tip the equilibrium by giving people money. Not good vibes. And so Smith was like, hey, everybody, the market itself is going to bring stability. Stop trying to intervene. If the economy gets bad, weakness will make prices fall and then people will hire more people because it's cheaper and they'll invest more. Things will get back to normal. Yay. So if you have a bad economy, people are going to figure that out. Prices are determined by the cost of production. So that moves within business cycles too. So the market essentially knows what's going on. In his eyes, chucking, bartering, and trading will reach an equilibrium through this idea of the invisible hand. So the invisible hand guides exchange of goods and services, essentially leads people to where they need to go and doing what they need to do. Everything's going to figure itself out. Don't worry, we got this. Then Marxism. So Marxism, workers should own the means of production. So this was Karl Marx, 19th century. Essentially here, the whole idea was like, hey, workers are just important as the machines that they build, but we don't see that value reflected in society. The workers should revolt. And so in his eyes, rich people, the bourgeoisie, they control the means of production and the proletariat who are the workers, they are the means of production. There's a huge misbalance there. So the people who own the means of production are benefiting from those who are actually the means of production. And so he was like, they're being exploited. There should be a revolution and the workers should take over. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer in his eyes. And that's not cool, right? And so we're seeing this kind of in the Major League Baseball right now. So Major League Baseball is going to go into lockout because owners want more money and baseball players are actually not getting paid, you know, a fair amount relative to what the MLB teams actually earn. Here, Marx would be like, hey, workers, you should revolt against these owners and take over the system. <laughs> the actual system itself should benefit from being in the system, not just the rich that control the system. What Marx wanted was a classless system in which 
everyone owns everything, essentially. For a reflection on what the systems are, so capitalism, that's production and distribution are owned by individuals and corporations, prices are determined by free markets, and profits are claimed by shareholders. In the context of socialism, socialism people can still own property, companies can run themselves, but states set prices and control investment. So if there's a surplus, they're like, all right, <laughs> lower prices. If there's a shortage, they're like, all right, higher prices. Communism is where property and wealth are all communally owned, and governments decide how to produce, what to produce, when to produce, and all that stuff, centrally planned. And as we've seen, you know, this idea of communism is great on paper, but maybe not great in practice, as we found out through the USSR, etc. Then Keynesian economics came around. So this is government intervention into aggregate demand. So getting people to spend money will smooth out business cycles. This was John Maynard Keynes and John Hicks, really the early 1900s. This idea of classical economics, so what Smith had proposed, really got thrown for a loop during the Great Depression. Everyone was like, okay, sure, dude, you think that this market can resolve itself. This huge crash that just happened, you think it's going to fix itself, my guy? And so everyone was like, what about all these unemployed people? We have business cycles and we got to figure out what to do with these big old swings. This gets into the idea of demand side theory. So aggregate demand, which is the total effective demand in an economy, is a key driver of the business cycle. So Keynes was like, whoa, okay, so if people aren't demanding goods, we're going to have a bad economy. If demand falls during a business cycle, people get unemployed and everything gets worse. So governments need to step in and they need to manipulate aggregate demand to get things up and rolling again. This gets into the idea of stimulus, right? So the government is going to increase spending, they're going to lower taxes. The whole idea here is getting people to spend money. More demand equals growth. This got into the idea of the multiplier effect, where more government money, more business activity, more spending, GDP could get really big. And so what the multiplier effect is, is that $1 of government investment could be way more economic growth down the line. Because if you think about it, that $1 could go and, and go and do all these different things. I could take that $1 and then I go buy an apple and maybe that person goes and takes the dollar that I just purchased that apple with and they go spend it on something else and then that person gets that money too and that that has a compounding effect throughout society and so GDP could get really big and so GDP for a reminder is the sum of all goods and services sold in a country so it's consumption investment government spending and exports minus imports most of this is consumer spending which is why they want to dissimulate aggregate demand in economics was all about demand governments have to intervene doing little things to help people spend more money because that's economic growth. The opposite of demand-side economics would be supply-side economics. Basically, <laughs> this is a very broad overview, but tax cuts. Tax cuts for corporates, tax cuts for everybody. People invest more, increase productivity, drive prices down. Productive money for everybody if you just cut taxes. And this is Robert Mundell and Art Laffer. So the Laffer curve is very famous. So essentially on the y-axis, you have tax revenue. On the x-axis, you have tax rate. The equilibrium tax rate is something that's in the middle, and that's where you're going to optimize the amount of tax revenue that you have. And so the idea was like, yes, still tax people, but don't tax them that much because that's actually not going to lead to a lot of tax income because people will evade the taxation law. Their whole idea was like, okay, taxes are really going to be how the government kind of manages stuff. Then there's monetarism. So monetarism was Milton Friedman, Anna Schwartz, Karl Brunner. It's really a branch of Keynesian, but it's essentially its own living being, in my opinion. M Milton Friedman is famous for saying inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. There's actually a really funny quote in response to Milton Friedman from Robert Solow, where he says, everything reminds Milton Friedman of the money supply. Everything reminds me of sex, but I try to keep it out of my papers. So as we talk about monetarism, just keep that quote in mind is that it's all about the money supply. That's all that Milton Friedman cared about was the money supply. Monetarism, as the name would imply, is around monetary policy. So how the government uses the supply of money to influence the economy. And this really gets into interest rates. Higher rates, people are going to borrow less. Lower rates, people are going to borrow more. That's how that's influenced there. This gets into the quantity theory of money. So MV equals PQ. M 
equals money supply, V equals rate of money spent or velocity, P equals price, and then Q equals number of transactions, and PQ is also a proxy for economic growth. So the idea here is that if V, velocity, remains constant, an increase in the money supply is going to be an increase in economic growth. Here, they were like, you can hold V constant because this is relatively the same in the long run. Right now, we have pretty low velocity, so they were like, well, okay, keep it constant. <laughs> grow that money supply, <laughs> then that's economic growth. You know, velocity goes up, then we have a problem. Keep that constant, more money. The whole idea here is that a controlled increase in the money supply will expand economic activity while keeping inflation low. So the Fed has that target of 2%, that 2% inflation. And the reason that they have that target is so they can expand the economy while keeping inflation in check. And so essentially with monetarism, more money, more demand, more jobs, more money. Control the money supply and you're freaking golden, my guy. As we know, with the Fed, they have this dual mandate of maximum employment and inflation, price stability. And the Phillips curve explains why that's hard. So Ben Phillips made this in 1958. And essentially, he was like, when wages rise, unemployment falls. People are like, yeah, I'll take that extra money. I'll go enter into the job market. But that leads to high inflation. But you have low unemployment. So you're like, okay, a little bit of trade-off, a little bit of trade-off. When wages fall, unemployment rises. But that leads to low inflation, but yet high unemployment. So this is the big trade-off that the Fed has to deal with. This maximum employment versus price stability, it's a hard trade-off. Economists have found since then that the Phillips curve applies more to the short term, not really the long term. But in the short term, you do see sort of this trade-off, which is why the Fed is like, Wah! about monetary policy. So what should be prioritized? The labor market, inflation, which one is worse? <laughs> Then there's the Austrian school. So only people know what they want and prices should reflect that. Get out of here, government. There's a theme here with the government. This was Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich von Hayek, early 1900s. So Menger was like, the economic value of goods and services are subjective. So you might love that apple, but I might not. We're gonna value that apple differently. Those preferences should be reflected in the market. This also gets into the idea of diminishing marginal utility. As you eat more pizza, that first slice is gonna be awesome. But by the time you have like, 12 slices of pizza, the subjective value of that pizza has declined substantially, as long as you're not lactose intolerant, like me. Over time, as you consume more and more pizza, it, it's not worth as much to you anymore. The subjective value does decline. So preferences are really what matters in sort of the, this larger economic theory. Hayek was like, socialism is inefficient. Only individuals know what they want, not the government. Free market, it's about preferences. Prices are super important because they reflect everything about the economy. Interest rates are determined by people's preferences to spend money, now versus later. Business cycles are because the government is trying to intervene. That's pretty rude of them, because then capital gets misallocated. Nothing goes to where it needs to go. The whole idea is government, get out. People know what they want. We don't need you. And then there's prospect theory. So only speak to me in terms of gains. <laughs> this was Daniel Kahneman in the late 1900s. And essentially here, investors value gains and losses differently. People framing their decisions impacts how they think. So people prefer gains, loss aversion theory, right? So you're gonna wanna avoid losses at all costs, but you're like, okay, some gains, sign me up. That's why crypto is so appealing because the APY is through the roof. This doesn't depend on the outcome, but how the outcome is presented really gets into to sort of like the psychological bias that investors have, that we all have, the cognitive bias, how we frame things, and sort of making sure that we're being responsible stewards of our mind. People's minds are super freaking weird, and the economy does reflect that too. Some other theories, so neoclassical growth is an interesting one. This is labor, technology, and capital drive economic growth. But this sort of leads out 
policy, entrepreneurship, and competition, creative destruction has been kind of the theme for the past couple of years, which is when companies step up, they create new products, they improve tech, they're more efficient, they do things a little bit better. And so, you know, you see this with like Adobe kind of taking a big fall, with Kodak taking a big fall. All these stalwarts of the ages have just taken big falls because other companies have stepped in and were like, well, if you're not going to innovate, we will. And then another important one, and I think one that's undervalued by the crypto market is rule of law. You literally have to have laws. You really do. Or else, you know, it's like, okay, well, who's actually in charge? Because things get weird because it's like, well, who owns what? You need somebody to enforce the rules because transactions are really done essentially on a handshake basis. There's not anybody stopping you from like running away with all the money unless you get sued or sent to jail. And so that's kind of the concept here is that you have to have people who are going to enforce these transactions. You have to have a rule of law. And that's honestly what put the USA and Europe ahead is they had really strong rules of law. So Malthus and his population growth theory, we literally can't grow forever because there are scarce resources, so we can't prioritize GDP growth forever, or else we're going to like burn the planet down. This is something I think about a lot because we do prioritize GDP growth, and it's kind of like, okay, well, should we be prioritizing GDP growth because the planet is on fire. Then the efficient market hypothesis, the market knows everything. Prices really do reflect all available information. This one's a little questionable, I would say. Maybe not. This is tested every single day. <laughs> that is a little bit of history around economic theory, a little bit of history about how we've gotten to where we are now with our market-based system. Sort of these thought patterns evolve over time and really have had them tested over time too. I think it's super important to kind of reflect on things that have happened and where things have been. I will be back tomorrow with a more thought piece around what happened in markets this week but for now thanks so much for hanging out with me thanks so much for spending time with me and i will see you soon bye